Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. We are continuing our exposition of the Gospel of John. This is our third week in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. And this chapter centers around the death of Lazarus and the glory of God displayed by the power of the Son of God. So just to recap, the last time that we were together, we looked at the disciples' confusion. They knew that Christ had said that the sickness of Lazarus would not end in death. And they may have believed that Jesus had forgotten all about the matter because two days had passed. Until Jesus finally comes to his disciples and says to them in John chapter 11, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. Judea was the place where Jesus was almost stoned because of his claims of being equal with God. So the disciples feared for the life of Jesus. They also feared for their own lives. So they attempted to discourage Jesus from returning to Judea. They said to him in in verse 8 of chapter 11, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus explained that he had work to do and that he would continue to work until his work and his mission was accomplished. On this occasion, the mission was to go and raise their friend, Lazarus, from the dead. The disciples were ready to die with Jesus, and they boldly agreed with the statement of Thomas, verse 16, let us go that we may die with him. So they traveled to Judea. And as Jesus and his disciples are traveling to Judea, friends and family are also traveling to Judea for the same purpose. Well, kind of. They're going to console Martha and Mary. There are also, I mentioned last time, professional mourners that are traveling to Judea as well. I did not mention this last time, but professional mourners were people that were basically paid to go and mourn with any family that was in mourning. So they would be paid to scream loud, to shout loud, to throw up dust, which was the the culture of that time, to throw up dust in the air and to throw dust upon their head. It was a sign of intense mourning. So these people are also traveling to Judea to mourn with the family of Lazarus. Upon arrival, Jesus is informed of what he already knew. Lazarus had been dead four days. He also was greeted by Martha. And her greeting appears to be the words of a person who is deeply pained by the loss of someone that she held dear, her brother. Lord, if you had been here, verse 21, my brother would not have died. As we discussed last week, it is the words of someone who is in intense grieving or intense grief. Words that express deep pain and also words that appear to be asking God the question that you and I often ask God when things that we don't understand happen. Why? Where? How come? And God usually does. And Jesus did what God usually does. He does not tell her why. God usually does not necessarily always tell you why. When you lose something. And isn't it interesting that we we usually want to ask God the question of why when we feel like we've lost something. Think about it. Why did I lose my loved one? 
Why did I lose my wallet? Right? My, my wife recently, why did I lose my phone? It always seems like we're asking God why when we lose something, as if we deserved anything at all. God is not required to give us the answers to those whys. But if you've been in this church for any amount of time or any other Bible teaching church, you will know that the answer to why is always and will always be for his glory. You may not understand how it will play out, but the answer to our whys will always be for his glory. Martha, having, after having a struggle of the flesh that we tend to have from time to time, appears to return to her senses and says in verse 22, But even now, <coughs> I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus encourages Martha and says, Your brother will live. And Martha's response is almost a dismissal of the encouragement of Christ. I know, I know, my brother will live. In the last day, on that resurrection day, and Jesus replies to her, No. Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha affirmed her belief in this amazing truth. And today, finally, after 21 days, Lazarus will come out of the tomb. In the story, he's dead for four days. He's been dead for 21 days here at this church. We got to get him out. We got to move. Amen. Today we will see the compassion of Christ and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Let's turn to John chapter 11, verse 28 through 45. Let's stand. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Oh, sorry. Twenty eight. When Jesus had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary had met him. When the Jews who were in her house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said to him or Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of Mary, the Martha, the sister of of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. They may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet 
bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear the word of the Lord this morning. You may be seated. Number one, the compassion of Christ. Verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. At the request of Jesus, Martha privately informs Mary or pulls Mary aside privately and informs her that the teacher has arrived and that he is asking for Mary. Now, there are a few guesses why Martha would go and pull Mary aside privately. Some say that it was because some of the Jews were hostile towards Jesus and that there may have been trouble there at the funeral if they knew he was there. Some have also said, and this is kind of the same thing, that she ran to meet Jesus ahead of the crowd so that she would be able to have a private meeting with him before all of the crowd began to swarm him. I tend to go with that that explanation. And it seems to me that she tells Mary about the coming of Jesus or the teacher so that he could she could also have a private session with the Lord Jesus. Now, whatever the reason, Jesus was told in verse three. The one whom you love is ill and interesting that when Martha goes to Mary, she says to her, the teacher is here and he is asking for you just as Jesus did not need to ask who is the one that I love that is ill in verse three. So also Mary did not need to ask which teacher who is asking for me. Because she knew that there was only one teacher. The sheep knew her shepherd. She did not need to ask Martha for an explanation. Verse 29. When she heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Just briefly. This is what happens when Christ calls you. You arise and you come. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in her house, consoling her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, Martha ran outside of the village. And you need to get the picture of this. As everyone's coming in, Martha goes outside of the village to go and meet Jesus. She runs ahead of Jesus to meet him before he enters into the village. Mary also goes and meets Jesus Before he enters into the village. Now, Mary must have been very distraught. And those who were consoling her in her grief thought that she was running to the tomb of Lazarus. That because she was so distraught and because she was so distressed that she could not bear herself. So she ran. They believed. They believed that she was running to the tomb. But she may have been running in the wrong direction. And it may have been that when she was running to see Jesus, if they had known that she was running to see Jesus, they might they might not have followed her. Verse 32, she goes out to meet Jesus and she says to him, now, when Mary came to Jesus, came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let me just take one step back. When the Bible says that Jesus was still where Martha met her, 
That means Martha assumably or presumably told Jesus, wait right here. And then runs to go get Mary. And then Mary runs to where Jesus was. Does that make sense? So I need you to get the picture of that. Now, Mary, when she sees Jesus, what does she do? She falls at a familiar place, the feet of Jesus. It was not that long ago that Jesus went into that same village and was welcomed into the home of Martha. In Luke 10.39, she had called her sister Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, to come and help her with all the preparations for their guest Jesus. But Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings in awe of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Lord came into their home, he began to share all of the wonderful truths about what he always shared about. Repentance, the kingdom of God, the son of God. Again, meanwhile, Mary is or was busy with all the preparations to come or that come with inviting guests into your home. Frustrated that Mary seemed content to sit at the Lord's feet while Martha worked, she complains. Actually, she even demands the Lord Jesus. She has a habit of doing things like that, does she not? Luke 1040, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to come and help me. We learned in our first lesson in chapter 11 that we don't command God to do anything. We come to God humbly. And the response of Jesus in verse 41 of that chapter was Martha, Martha. MacArthur says, uh, whenever someone says your name twice, you know you're in trouble. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. Mary was not abandoning her part of being a good host. She realized that of all the things that were to be done, the most important thing that must be done is being at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Interestingly enough, we will see in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John that Mary comes to Jesus once again. And this time she falls at the feet of Jesus and she anoints his feet with expensive perfumes and then begins to wipe them with her hair. And it was Mary who went to the empty tomb of Jesus. And as she wept, presumably on her knees, it was the Lord Jesus who came up behind her and said her name. Mary. Go now, Mary. Be the first to proclaim that I have risen. Why, Mary? Why do you throw yourself at the feet of this man? She understood that this is no mere man. This is the God man, the, the son of God, the third person of the Trinity. And while her knowledge of those things were veiled and limited at that time. Those truths are no longer veiled and limited to her. For she is right now once again. Sitting in the presence of the Lord. And while those theological truths are true. This moment was not necessarily about worship. It was not necessarily about a recognition of one's divinity or Christ's divinity. This was a woman. A human woman. Who was expressing real human emotions. Now what about you? 
Where can you be found? In times of peace and in times of sorrow, where can you be found? Can you be found trying to figure things out on your own? Could you be found in your garage trying to put some kind of machine together that will all make it work? Can you be found working extra hours just so that you can get by? Can you be found manipulating, lying? Or will you be found at the feet of Jesus? Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And at this particular time, she is in sorrow. Now listen, pay attention to the reaction of Jesus. Verse 33 of chapter 11. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Listen, he was greatly moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. As the scene is unfolding, we are blessed by God, the Holy Spirit, to get a glimpse into the humanity and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle notes as a real man, he was specially moved with when he saw Mary and the Jews weeping as God. He had not need to hear their plaintive language and to see their tears in order to learn that they were afflicted. He knew they were afflicted. He knew perfectly all their feelings. Now, I wanted you to think about this. Why the sorrow, Jesus? Did he not know that he was coming to raise Lazarus from the dead? And that there was no need for sorrow because there will be joy. Well, of course he knew what he was planning to do. He said in verse 11, Lazarus has fallen asleep and we are going to wake him up or I am going to wake him up. Now think about the scene again. The family, the friends, the mourners, Martha, Mary, and all that have gathered are gathering for the purpose of weeping. Mourners are on their knees throwing up dust in the air, throwing dust on their heads. There are couples who are gathering in packs, consoling one another concerning this death. His disciples are also there, fearing that they too will die along with their teacher. And although Jesus is mindful of what he is there to accomplish, listen now. He is also given a picture of what he has been sent to conquer in this world. Sin and death. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.32. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as man, sin came into the world through one man and death spread through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Christ is given right before his eyes a vivid picture of, of what sin has produced. Death. And death has come to all humanity. And he is getting a vivid picture of the emotion that sin has caused when people die as a result of it. You know what that is like. That's why when people die in funerals, whether you cry there or cry in your own private time, it's reasonable. Because this is what sin has produced. Death. And Christ is seeing the very enemy that he has come to conquer. And it brings the God man to the point that he was deeply moved in his spirit. 
Some believe that he was moved inwardly in his spirit so that nobody could see. But verse 35 tells us that he wept. And it was so much of an outward expression that the people said, see how much he loved him. No, Christ was expressing real emotion, real compassion, real humanity. His emotions, as human as they were, were not corrupted as our emotions are corrupted. Listen, our emotions are out of control and often uncalled for. You know anybody who ever has out of control emotions or uncalled for emotions? Please don't look at your husbands or wives. Our emotions are often misplaced and unending. You know someone who doesn't stop complaining, doesn't stop being emotional? Don't look to your left or your right. And our emotions are often inappropriate because sometimes we are unmoved by anything. That nothing moves us. We are emotionless like, do you have a heart? Oh, but the passions of the God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ were never beyond proper boundaries. His emotions were never out of control. His emotions were were never uncalled for. Think about this. Even in John chapter 2 and Matthew 21, when Jesus makes a whip out of cords in order to chase out those who were defiling his father's house, his emotions were completely called for. They were completely appropriate. The emotions of Christ were never misplaced and they never went too far. Even in Matthew 23, when he calls the enemies of him hypocrites, blind fools, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers. No, that was all appropriate and called for. No, the emotions of Christ were always appropriate. And in this instance, even though he knew what he was coming to do to raise his friend from the dead, he did not stand there a stoic. He did not stand there unmoved. He did not stand there emotionless. No, he wept with those who were weeping. Do you? Will you? Will you comfort those who need comfort with the same comfort that you have been comforted with? He could show himself in this moment that he is our great high priest who was able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses, all of our infirmities. And yet... He did not sin, Hebrews 4.15. Let us draw comfort from this fact this morning. That our great high priest is not indifferent to your life. He's not sitting back saying, oh well. Listen to where he positions himself. At the right hand of the Father making intercession on your behalf. Don't ever think God does not care. Don't ever think that there there is no compassion coming from God. And if you would like some kind of insight into what that prayer is like, why don't you ask Peter? I pray for you. Philip, I pray for you, Arnold. I pray for you, John, Isaiah, that your faith will not fail you. Oh, be encouraged by that prayer. And then what he says, and when you are restored, you're going to go through things. But when you're restored, turn around and strengthen your brothers. 
You want insight into what kind of prayer that, that he is praying for you? Get a glimpse into the holies of holies in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays not only for his disciples, but for you and I who would come to believe in him and that we would see and know his glory. That's what he's praying for you. Our, compa- our, our sheep, our, our Lord has compassion on his sheep. He loves his sheep and he loves them to the point that he would even weep with them. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Those who were present were moved by the emotion of Christ. See how he loved him. It's translated behold. And it's a reaction of surprise and admiration. Wow. He really did love that man. And at the same time, there's a bit of confusion. They had heard about the works of Christ. It was not long ago that the story of Christ bringing sight to a blind man spread to their region. And they questioned. Now, he did this for this blind man. Could he not raise this man from the dead? Now, we don't know the tone here. It could be a sarcastic tone. It could be a statement of faith. If it was sarcastic, their faith, their lack of faith would be put to shame. And if it was a statement of faith, their faith would be confirmed. Number two, the raising of Lazarus. Now, you need to get this this scene here. Jesus comes to the tomb because he's asked, show me where you've laid him. So they direct Jesus and they're walking with him. Now, usually. Oh, gosh. Okay. Jesus comes to the tomb. All right. And once again, he's expressing emotion. This time, it's a different emotion. They lead Jesus to where the tomb is. It is a cave. Many were buried in caves at that time. It was usually a hole that was carved out of the mountain. And then they would lay a stone over it. They would roll a stone over the mouth of the cave. There was no embalming. They didn't believe in that. They simply just wrapped the dead in, in linen and cloths. Now, Jesus is coming to that scene. Now, usually it's on a higher elevated place. And when it is or where it is elevated, you probably most likely have all of those mourners at the bottom watching as Jesus is approaching this cave, this tomb. Verse 38. Then Jesus. Now, listen here. Deeply moved again. Came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Another emotion. But this is a different kind of emotion. It's an expression that is used for snort. When it says, when the Bible says deeply moved again, snorting. It's an expression of how a bull snorts. I can't do it right now. Right? A bull snorts before charging at his target. That's the expression that is used here when Jesus comes to the, to the cave. He snorts. John Calvin says, Christ does not come to the tomb as an idle spectator, listen, but like a wrestler preparing for a contest. <laughs> the emotion of Christ that, that Christ was express, expressing was, was that of a gladiator who was preparing to enter the arena and slay his foe. Christ was coming to do battle. 
He has come to battle against his greatest foe, sin and death. And he stares at that tomb. He stares down his opponent. He stares down his, his opponent as, 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 a, as a prize fighter stares down his opponent before they get ready to do battle. He has come to conquer death. And while it is true that the wages of sin is death, read the rest of the verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our champion. While it is true in Romans 5.17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. Our champion. Lazarus is dead in the tomb. He's helpless. He's lifeless. He can't do anything for himself except stink or stinketh, which we'll read. And while he is dead, while he is hopeless, unable and unwilling to do anything for himself, the champion of life, the one who called light out of darkness, stands in front of the cave of one of his sheep and he snorts. I would have loved to be there. Thank God that the Holy Spirit has given us some kind of insight into what that moment was like. And he wipes probably his snort, as I just did. And says in verse 39, take away the stone. Let's do this. I love the comment of J.C. Ryle. Listen to this. He says, now why did the Lord say this? It was doubtless as easy for him to command the stone to roll away untouched as to call a dead man or a dead body from the tomb. He could have just said stone up, twirl it around and threw it. He could have fought it and the stone would have moved. But he tells people, remove the stone. Ryle continues. But such was not his mode of proceeding. Here, as in other cases, he chose to give man something to do. Here, as elsewhere, he taught the great lesson that his almighty power was not meant to destroy man's responsibility. Even when he was ready and willing to raise the dead, he would also not have man stand by idle either. So even though it was God's work to raise this man from the dead... He is not going to allow us to sit back and say, "Okay, I'm not going to do anything. And as I mentioned this past Wednesday, our part is to preach the gospel. God's part is to raise and awaken dead men from the grave. Let this be true in your training up your children in righteousness. They can go to whatever church. They can stay home if they want to. Oh, they can, they're just doing homework. You better do your part. Amen. Or when they get 18, you're going to ask, whose kid are you? It's not our job to take care of your kid. Those, though we have great teachers here, they spend an hour and maybe an hour and a half a week with us. Sometimes over 40 hours at school. The rest of the time is spent with you. What will you do with it? Give them a computer and say, go play. Let this be true also in our lives in pursuing holiness. In our own lives. Don't just say, well, God will just take care of it. You better be reading. You should be praying. 
You should be in church as often as the doors open. And I say this especially for those who think Sunday is enough. Our church doors are open at least three times a week. You would not eat once a week, would you? Some of you need to start eating once a week. Roll away the stone. And Martha shows that she's much like us. Martha, verse 39, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for days. Martha, what has happened to you? Where is your faith? Where is the woman who boldly said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God who has come into the world. Have you so quickly turned from the faith that you confessed? Oh, you've been there. You've been there. When it's one thing that comes out of your mouth, and then when it comes down to it, another thing comes out of your mouth, and you find yourself in that great struggle that Paul explained. What I want to do, I don't do it. Lord, by this time, he stinks. And once again, Jesus has to correct her, as he often has to correct us. He says in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Let me first say that Christ is reminding Martha of lessons that he most likely had spoken to her, not on this day, but over a period of time that they had known each other and met with one another. He had probably said to her many times, Believe, if you continue to trust in God, you'll continue to see how God moves in your life. He is not saying to her, If you have enough faith, your brother will be healed. He is not saying to her, if you have enough faith, what you're hoping for will happen for you. That is a heretical teaching. That is a damning false theology. God's power is not limited by man's will or by man's faith. And as we will see in a moment, when we oppose the work of God, God chooses to overcome or not overcome our rebellion. When we When he freely chooses to display or not display his glory in our lives. Meaning this, God has freedom to do whatever he wants. And our lack of anything is not going to stop God, who is sovereign and all powerful over all things, from doing what he will do. Does that make sense? Some may be thinking of Matthew chapter 13 or Mark 6 when Jesus goes back to his hometown. Could not do any miracles, pastor, because of their lack of faith. No, it was not that Jesus could not overcome their unbelief. It was that he chose not to display his glory among them because of their hard hearts. But I digress. Remember, Martha, all that you have heard and all that you've been taught. And there are all those looking on. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they believe, that they may believe that you sent me. Here is our champion, full of compassion, full of determination. Although Christ has not asked for anything yet, he begins with thanksgiving. And he is not speaking out loud in a prayer for any other reason, but that those who are hearing him would recognize that what he is about to ask for, God is going to answer, because he and God are one. Amen. To show all those who are standing around and gawking, open the, the tomb, are you crazy? Watch. When he had said these things, 
He cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine a loud voice of Christ? I wonder if it rolled like thunder or was sharper like lightning. We knew that his voice was strong enough to speak to at least 20,000 people. If Spurgeon could speak to thousands in the 19th century, I'm sure one of the gifts that Christ had was a loud, strong voice. The Greek translation is literally translated this, Lazarus, here, outside. And it gives us a glimpse into what maybe even the creation of the universe was like. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God in the flesh, the one by whom and through whom all things have been made. Lazarus, here, outside. Can you imagine the crowd? That's still, some of your mouths are open right now. It's dead. That's still, that's shocking. He's crazy. <laughs> then you start to hear gravel inside of that cave moving. Maybe you start to hear someone breathing. The crowd. Imagine all people doing that together. You're in, you've been in theaters where you've heard that and it's funny. And at the entrance of the cave, the Bible says in verse 44, the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen straps or strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them again, gives them a responsibility, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine the shock of this crowd? Never been done before. Never has anyone raised anyone from the dead. And he wants his spectators to be involved in this. He wants his doubters to be involved in this. So much so, so that he says to them, go touch him. Go and bind him. This is no illusion. This is no sleight of hand. This is a work of God. And what was the result? Verse 45. Many Jews put their faith in him because of what they saw. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come to conquer sin, death, and the grave. This was the consequence of the sin of Adam. He rebelled, Adam, against God and brought death upon all of humanity. Brothers and sisters, we were Lazarus. We were dead in our graves. We were without without hope, unwilling and unable to save ourselves. But the champion of life, the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve. And he himself rose from the dead, showing that he conquered finally sin, death, and the grave. Oh, but he's not stopped there. He has come and he has stood in front of the graves or the tombs of his people, his sheep. And he has stood in front of those tombs and he snorted. And he has said to each and every one of his sheep, Tony, outside, here. He said to each each and every one of his sheep, Joe, here, outside, and if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, from the wrath of God, you will be saved. If you trust that Christ is your only hope of being saved, if you trust that salvation is by God's free gift of grace, that you can't earn it or pay it back, and that you are saved by faith in Christ's perfect, completed work on your behalf, you will be saved. 
And oh, it will cost you everything. All of this world, all of its comforts, all of its pleasures, all of its ideas. It may cost you your family, your friends, popularity. But my dear friends, the comforts of this world are nothing in comparison to the comfort of knowing that you have been made right with God and that your conflict with him has ended and there is now peace between you and God. There has been reconciliation. There is no greater pleasure than that which is found at the feet of Jesus. And there is truth there. There is freedom there. We have been adopted into a new family with brothers and sisters. We've been brought together by blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the blood and the body that we celebrate this morning on this Lord's Day. He has raised a race of Lazaruses and called them his bride. Let us stand this morning.